Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis, and visiting from New York City, we have Professor Maria Josefina Saldaña Portillo. Dr. Saldaña Portillo is a professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU and author of The Re Revolutionary Imagination in the Americas and the Age of Development, uh, published in 2003, and Indian Given, Racial Geographies Across Mexico and the United States, published in 2016, which was awarded the Best Book Award for the, from the National Association for Chicano and Chicana Studies. Congratulations for that thank award. Thank you, thank you. Josie, bienvenida a este episodio de Ohio Habla. Mucho gusto. Gracias, Elena, por invitarme a estar contigo esta mañana. Claro. Uh, can you tell us about yourself? Did you grow up in New York? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, from Laredo, which is on the border. Uh, it's actually the called the quote-unquote gateway to Mexico. It's at the end of Highway 35. Um, and it's actually now uh, the largest inland port. We have the most traffic uh, of uh, goods going both ways uh, in trucks and trains. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I grew up on the border, and that's why I'm compelled to write about uh, the borderlands in my second book. Uh, my first book was about Central American and Mexican revolutionary processes. Mm -hmm. So I'm always glad to have um, Tejanas in the studio. <laughs> uh, Tejanas in the house. Yes, yeah. I, I mentioned a little bit ago to you that there's a lot of Tejanas here in, at Ohio State. So. Wonderful. I hope to meet them to, right. in the course of the day. <laughs> right. Your research touches on issues of identity of indigenous peoples and how the history of colonialism frames identity, racial ide ideals, and perhaps ideas at the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Can you talk to us about this? Uh, sure, I'm happy to. Um, I think that what makes the experience of Latinx people uh, very unique, and especially uh, Mexicanos, Mexicano-Americanos on the border uh, unique, is this coming together of two uh, colonial systems, the Spanish colonial system and the Anglo-American colonial system, especially, you know, in the borderlands that's, uh, you know, colonized by the U.S. in the aftermath of um, the U.S.-Mexico uh, war. So we have within us these very different uh, racial ideologies, right? And so we're always, as Latinx, as Chicanx, as, you know, Mexicano, Americano, toggling between these two uh, forms of racial formation with very different demands on us psychically. Mm. Uh, you know, the U.S. has uh, promoted since its inception a uh, racial purity model, mm -hmm. right, with whites and uh, indigenous peoples, African-Americans, uh, all considered separate races. It's a very ra recent phenomena that you have this idea of uh, biraciality. Mm. Whereas in Mexico, coming out of a Spanish colonial system, 
um, misogyny. I'm just misogyny. Well, that too. But miscegenation was really a, a tool of colonialism. Mm-hmm. So it was promoted by both the crown and the church, right? The ideal was uh, one of mixture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very biggest ideals was, of course, Spanish purity and indigenous purity. Right. But they didn't actually set out to uh, keep Spanish and indigenous peoples apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, there is in the Latinx and especially in the border, uh, this community of people who have um, been required by the United States to to disassociate themselves from that history of racial admixture, not just biological mixture, but, you know, ideological mm-hmm. mixture. Mestizaje, people often think of as a biological event, mm-hmm. but it's also an ideological event in Latin America, right? It's the privileged form of citizenship. And that requires not that the Indian indigenous uh, aspect of Mexican identity be dismissed or disavowed, but actually be incorporated in a different, obviously in a hierarchical re- re- relationship of power, but nevertheless be incorporated into the model of citizenship. Very, very different than how it functions in the U.S., where the imperative is to forget, mm-hmm. to make indigenous uh, or Origins uh, in the United States disappear, mm. uh, be policed onto a reservation. Right. Right? Those very mm-hmm. different models. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently read your article in which um, you start with the question: When is an Indian not an Indian? Um, and I, and I, you know, as I thought about it, I'm like, well, there's a sort of impossibility about this question. Don't you think? There is an impossibility, and that's why I pose it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, an Indian is not an Indian. Uh, when she or he crosses into the United States mm-hmm. from Latin America and is and is immediately within this different racial ideology made to disavow indigenous heritage. Mm. Uh, and so that article explores the way in which actually U.S. models of um, ethnic studies and Native American studies, uh, African American studies, have a hard time... Uh, of understanding uh, indigeneity uh, as it's lived mm. by its Latin American counterparts, right? And I mean, in the United States, there's a very pr- in, within Native American um, uh, traditions, there's a very great privileging of your tie to your to your ancestral lands. Yes. Uh, but forces of neoliberalism have, and there is in Latin America too, but forces of neoliberalism have set in motion, once again in migration, huge numbers of indigenous peoples from Guatemala, Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, and from Mesoamerica. So uh, th- what happens when these indigenous peoples cross our borders, uh, uh, you know, seeking asylum or seek- seeking economic possibilities that have been eliminated because of neoliberalisms mm-hmm. in their own countries. How does uh, an ethnic studies and a critical race studies, uh, uh, Native American indigenous studies, uh, recognize, apprehend those people? Right. Um, one of the things that makes me think, and, and this is happening here in Ohio, we have a lot of, um, and it's happening throughout the United States that we have uh, this community, right, indigenous communities coming to the U.S. Absolutely. And one of the things that we're... Um, um, <laughs> we're faced with is language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this assumption that um, all peoples from Latin America speak Spanish, and then we have, you know, this community and that we can't find um, 
translators. Translators, right? Mm-hmm. Because we assume, oh, they speak Spanish, and they don't. And if they do, it might be their second language, mm-hmm. uh, which is is not their preferred or stronger language. Um, so that's you know that's very problematic when we um, and then they're. We, we we can offer or they don't have access to certain services because of this language. Absolutely. Um, and it's our problem. It's not their problem. I mean, they're, they're right. multilingual. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're often multilingual peoples because, you know, they might speak uh, Tojolabal, but their neighbor speaks Chol, and, mm-hmm. you know, their other na- you know, another pueblo right next door speaks Saltal. And so Spanish is often their third or fourth language, mm-hmm. you know, right. because they have uh, come from communities that are very, very much, uh, you know, intertwined and, 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 and have learned each other's languages. And Spanish is, is indeed a second or third language. That's part of, uh, in part, a kind of resistance to the dominance of Spanish. Spanish language in Mexico, and it's also an effect of the failure of the Mexican state to provide uh, bilingual education at the primary and secondary levels, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, school levels. Yeah, but we have to recognize that as an ability rather than a disability on our on their part, and you know, and mm-hmm. find out how we can better serve them. Yes, we had just a recent um, incident um, a few months ago where there's um, this man that was here from Oaxaca mm-hmm. um, had an accident, and they somehow were able to contact the father, and he came, but he didn't speak Spanish, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was very hard um, because he had to make. Um, Decisions, decisions, yeah, yeah. and he couldn't because he didn't understand, and it was so. It it was very, it was very tragic uh, in many ways. Uh, But you know, I think uh, members of our community, Latino community here in Ohio, we saw it as. Um, a problem on our end, right? Not n- never uh, as well. He doesn't speak English or Spanish, right? But uh, what can we do so that we can reach and and you know have access to to different kinds of languages of the people that live here? Um, so I he- I hear the word um, Indian in Spanish, Indio or India, and it continues to have such a heavily negative um, connotations, right? In in Latin America um, specifically. Um, I spent a few weeks in Oaxaca last summer. Um, I stayed with a large um, number of living and thriving uh, indigenous communities. And I always wonder how and why we continue to stigmatize this group. Uh, take, for example, Yalitza Aparicio, the Oscar-nominated actress in the Oscar-nominated movie uh, Roma, Roma that came out um, last Last year, uh, she has publicly uh, uncovered so much racism in Mexico. Uh, people said, have said all kinds of racist comments about who she is and whether she deserves the spotlight because she is an Indian woman specifically. Some have attacked her appearance, revealing that as a society, people think that indigenous people are not beautiful. Uh, what do you think of all this? Well, first of all, I should say that uh, my mother is from Oaxaca, and I spent every summer of my childhood in Oaxaca among, uh, you know, thriving indigenous communities uh, who all uh, would congregate in uh, Tlacolula, that's where we would stay, uh, on on market day, which Mm -hmm. was Sunday. And so, um, you know, there was a very, my uncle had a general store, and he actually knew uh, several indigenous languages, I assume, because though he never admitted it, he (laughs) himself had indigenous origins. Mm -hmm. So the racism of which you speak is very, very familiar Mm -hmm. uh, to me. You know, uh, you don't hear it as much, but people used to say, I said, me salió lo indio. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But that's Those a very yeah. interesting expression, mm-hmm. right? Because se me salió lo indio, the Indian came out of me or mm-hmm. slipped out of me, mm-hmm. right? It's it's both acknowledging indigenous ancestry and also acknowledging the shame of that and, mm-hmm. or, or the idea that one needs to control that, right? right? Not that yeah. it's ever going to be absent from one's being, mm-hmm. but one needs to control that. So, I mean, I'm not... You know, Mexico is a land of contradiction, and it both elevates and uh, it, it adulates its indigenous heritage um, on every corner in Mexico and mm-hmm. Oaxaca. You know, right. you can see this, um, and all, and then at the same time, sees uh, uh, indigeneity as somehow a, a certain lack of civility still. Uh, and I think that the importance of someone like Elitza Aparicio is that. Uh, she's bringing uh, indigenous peoples into the mainstream of mm-hmm. Mexican media, mm-hmm. right? I mean, indigenous uh, Mexicanos have had a film festival in Oaxaca right. for like the last 15, 20 years. And, and you can go there and you can see films made by indigenous peoples, for indigenous peoples in indigenous languages, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes not subtitled, you know, mm-hmm. because they haven't had the funds or the time or whatever. So um, there is a thriving, you know, indigenous cultural production mm-hmm. and a market for in Mexico, uh, Cuaron brings it into one of the artists, not the only one, is bringing it into mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think it's fantastic that at once um, Yalitza Aparicio shows the con- residual indigenous uh, prejudice against Indians mm-hmm. but all in Mexico, but also the the kind of pride and continued authority over their own experience that indigenous peoples have always expressed. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, they they are the heart of the economy in all of southern Mexico uh, today. You know, they uh, are able to both preserve traditions, languages, and be extremely modern, right, mm-hmm. in their transnational citizenship that we find expressed all the time, you know. And so I think it's great. I think it's a wonderful thing. I also think um, I applaud Cuaron for, uh, as usual, having the courage to go places that other Mexican filmmakers won't go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the fact that he didn't... Um, um, put subtitles for when they were speaking, you know, the, 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 the yeah, mixtec. Um, so to me, that also speaks of just the value, right? Or this um, idea that do we need to be translated? Do we need to be, you know, um, I think of it um, in Spanish too, right? When I, when I write um, articles that are, um, and I use uh, bilingual text, um, do I need to provide, should I uh, provide a translation for it? Or is there, I mean, Spanish is not a foreign language here in the U.S. Spanish or Mixteco or whatever other indigenous languages in in Mexico are not foreign, right? I, are part of the country. So. Well, in fact, they're the original languages. And they're recognized in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. I get very, very angry when I read criticism, literary or cultural mm-hmm. or sociological, and uh, French is never translated. Mm-hmm. The author is assumed that assumes that the reader knows this, you know, high, right. you know, high language, mm-hmm. right? And and if they don't, they should feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. They should have to go look it up. But of course, I always uh, succumb to the pressure of the publisher. I often don't want to translate the Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, especially uh, when you insert. 
you know, Spanish in the kind of uh, in the same way that one would insert French or German, mm-hmm. right? I, mm-hmm. I really don't want to try, but I always bow to the pressure, mm-hmm. but not without a certain resentment, right? <laughs> or resistance. There's other resistance, or other yeah. other ways to resist yeah. that too. Um, Gloria Saldua in Border, Borderlands La Frontera writes about um, the love and hate relationship that we have with our ancestral past language and everything in between. And I know that's very, uh, it's very hard to summarize all of Saldua's ideas in just one sentence. But I wanted to ask about what you have found to be the reasons or some of the reasons that Chicanos and Chicanas and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands either identify and embrace their indigenous background or reject it altogether. Um, and, I, and I think I get, it goes back to this se me salió el indio, ¿verdad? Mm-hmm, um, idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I talk about that a lot in my, um, in my second book, mm-hmm. Indian Given. Um, and I'll try to paraphrase that argument, but it's difficult. Part of the reason I think that we have both a outsized attachment among some Mexicano-Americanos to our indigenous heritage mm-hmm. and a uh, out, you know, a kind of outright rejection of it is precisely because it has been legally denied us mm. in the United States. Mm. There is no way uh, to apreciar el indígena mm. en nuestra cultura in the United States. Mm. There is a um, a legal pro- prohibition against. Latinos identifying with their indigenous heritage. Mm -hmm. The Treaty of Guadalupe, when it was signed by the United States and Mexico, it very clearly laid out that all Mexican citizens that were being annexed, Mm -hmm. to use a kind of neutral word, uh, into the United States were to have the full rights and privileges of U.S. citizens. But of course, at that moment, the Mexican nation had already fully recognized all indigenous and African, Afro-Mestizo mm-hmm. uh, peoples, Mexicanos, as full citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, the male ones, obviously. There's, right. There's, uh, but, and so the way in which the United, the United States, uh, when it has to implement the treaty, uh, the repeatedly territorial governments and the United States government say, oh, well, this can't be right. Yeah. Uh, John Marshall writes a decision. I believe it's John Marshall. I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to check the scholarship. But one of the one of the judges writes a decision that says, oh, the Mexicans couldn't possibly have included indigenous peoples mm. in this, Indians in this, because mm. Indians are children, you know, and they need our tutelage. And the same with Afro-Mestizos. They couldn't possibly have meant mm. to include blacks as full citizens, but they did. Mm-hmm. You know, the first president of Mexico was indígena from mm-hmm. Oaxaca, mm-hmm. Benito Juárez. Benito Juárez yeah. And the third, uh, Vicente Guerrero, was Afro-Mestizo, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they very much intended to include that. And so oftentimes, uh, in order to keep lands or in order to keep uh, any citizenship rights, Mexicanos had to go to court and uh, affirm that they had absolutely no indigenous or black mm. heritage. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a legal injunction, right, to disavow that. And when that kind of disavowal happens, it creates a kind of a trauma, right, at the level of – I. Think of it as a kind of historical unconscious that we carry around with mm-hmm. us, right? We're not allowed to identify with that indigenous past. Whereas in Mexico, like I said, my mother's from Oaxaca. Uh, not one of my Oaxacan relatives, not only do they not deny their indigenous heritage, although 
I don't. I'm not entirely sure they're you know they're they're right to claim it, but they don't claim to be indigenous, but they claim indigenous heritage proudly. Mm-hmm. You know they're mm-hmm. so proud. Every time we go, we have to visit all of the different indigenous pueblos and see all of their art mm-hmm. and purchase stuff. And mm-hmm. of course, they have you know relationships with all of these people, longstanding relationships of of exchange because you know son comerciantes mi familia. And so you know there is a there is a you you don't have to disavow it in Mexico, right? You don't necessarily claim it you know you don't you know you know if you have left behind indigenous practices that you are no longer Indian this is something Guillermo uh, Bonfil Batalla makes clear in 1996 right we have entire communities in Mexico that are peasant communities that are indigenous in everything but name because they have been Latinized they've been made mestizo culturally but in some ways but in other ways all of their practices are still just like the indigenous pueblos next to them right so there is a there is a intimacy with mm. indigeneity in Mexico that in the United States we're forced to disavow, and that disavow produ- produces its counter reaction, right, of a, of a of a of a very strong attachment, uh, right, to a kind of generic indigenous identity that you know I have critiqued in Nanzaldua many years ago, many moons ago, a, 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 an outsized attachment to this generic indigenous identity, mm. and on the other hand, a kind of re- a racist rejection, an internalized racist rejection of right. the Indio within the Indio Barbaro. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, given the kind of political climate we live in today, where Trump, you know, is claiming all, Mexicos, all Mexicanos are, are bad hombres, mm-hmm. that is directly a result of the idea of the Indio Barbaro and the borderlands, right, mm-hmm. of the, that was, that was stigmatized as, you know, uh, you know, a savage barbarian right. out to kill you at every turn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple times the term Latinx, and and in the past few years, although the term is not that new, but it has been embraced by many. And I wanted to ask you what you think of the term and if it is as inclusive of indigenous um, Latin American identity as it claims to be. I think that it is a difficult thing to translate into Spanish the X, right? right. Because mm-hmm. Spanish is a romance language, and so every uh, article is uh, gendered, and so, you know, if you were to try to imagine <laughs> uh, you know, inserting the X instead of every gendered pronoun and, and word, your your head's going to spin a little bit. Although, yeah. that said, I do know Mexicanos who do uh, you know, write their emails and have already adapted this, like, fully. Mm-hmm. Not, not many, and I'm in an academic, you know, environment. So, you know, it's not going to happen, or at least it hasn't happened at the level of the, of the, the, of the gente, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, what I, what I, so I don't know if it's uh, linguistically, it's linguistically a challenge to mm-hmm. imagine how you would introduce that in uh, Spanish-speaking countries, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, in a broadly, like, how, how would you pronounce it? You right. know what right. I mean? Uh, uh, I mean, I just, as a kind of an exercise sometimes, and, you know, I, 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 in the shower, I, I, I try to pronounce in Spanish with the X, and it's very, it's very amusing to me and difficult. <laughs> um, but I think that um, it does strike a... Uh, uh, a note for for thinking more complicatedly about gender that I think is refreshing, even in Latin America. I don't know if it's inclusive. 
You know, mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't know how inclusive or uninclusive Latin American nations will find it. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, you know, something that's developed in the United States right. and developed among Latinos and many times even among ethnic studies in the US, you know, there is a certain kind of like you know, pushing of our paradigms on Latin America. And, you know, Mexicanos really resent it, academics especially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of, you know, you know, this other form, you know, this kind of from the left. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how it works out. Do you think it's only um, trying to be inclusive of genders? Because one of the things that I've, I've had conversations about this, and and, and I, I don't know if I'm, I completely embrace Latinx. Uh, I don't identify a Latinx. I want to keep you know, saying I'm Latina, I'm not Latinx, I'm Latina, right, for, for other reasons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sure. which is, you know, one of them is that um, as women, we fought so much, right, to, to be included, mm-hmm. uh, to not just speak of us as Latinos, but mm-hmm. to, um, to put the A in there, right, to, to give us a presence, voice. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but what the, the discussion has been about, well, this also points to our indigenous um, communities. And so I don't know if you've heard it in, in that way. Um, I have, I have. And the way I have heard the argument is that um, the X uh, in something like uh, Mexica, mm-hmm. right? The X is a, is a sound that the Spaniards encounter uh, among indigenous peoples that they uh, translate as X. Uh, but it's a sh mm-hmm. sound. You know, sometimes it's translated as X, sometimes it's translated as CH. And so um, the, 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 the argument is that when you attach the X at the end, then you are recuperating that erased indigenous history. Um, I think that's a beautiful, uh, complementary mm-hmm. uh, explanation of why you would want to include X in Latinx and Chicanx. Um, which I don't think precludes you or I mm-hmm. who are though the people can't see us, clear uh, femmes, <laughs> you know, claiming, <laughs> continuing to refer to ourselves as Latinas. Right. Um, but um, I do think that I don't know if that's recognized by the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. I haven't had enough exchange with it. I'm not sure that, you know, um, it would be necessarily, in- it's definitely not inclusive enough. I mean, if, if we have to sit here and explain why right. it's inclusive, then, you know, there's no way that it's inclusive. And we're still also defaulting to um, the register of Spanish with right. the X, right? right? Even though it does recall it. And I, I like the fact that it has that, but it's certainly not going to substitute for actually learning about uh, different colonial processes that went on in New Spain and different forms of indigenous uh, subjectivity and identity that were created mm-hmm. under that very different colonial uh, matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a conversation that I had just recently with my students about the terms, right, in Latino, all of those um, <clears throat> terms. Um, and and we arrived to Latinx and and my students are familiar right because that in the past two three years, um, in the university we are using this term right and and they were surprised when I said well you know this is a U.S. construction right like if you go to Mexico and you say Latinx people they'll look at you like you're crazy <laughs> like mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. and 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 they don't like we don't identify in Mexico or in Ecuador or lo que sea. We're Ecuadorianos, we are Mexicanos, we're not Latinos, right? And so Latinx is also a U.S. um, construction. And um, so some of them are, you know, surprised by that. Um, 
But um, but it gets us talking about identity in many ways, right? Uh, the U.S. Ident- Latino, Latina, Latinx identity, and also our relationship with Latin America and what that means. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting conversation. It's yeah. a very important conversation. Uh, you know, Latinx is uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx. Uh, it's a uh, utopic uh, hailing to a political community. That's how I try to explain it to my students. It's not a natural category, right? In fact, the term Latin, you know, in Latin America is is is, is about a certain like to a moment in, you know, when France and 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 Spain and England are all trying are vying for the post-colonial advantage in Latin America and some intellectuals see Latin from the French, right? Mm. Would prefer the French, uh, you know, alliances with the French over the British, right? And so, it, it even and that, and that's why they adopt the term Latin to say, you know, we are derivative of, you know, Latin, Latin romance, you know, people from Romance languages, right? Mm-hmm. The French, the Spanish, the Portuguese. So, it's our it's so tied up in imperial history, but it does even at that inception suggest a kind of political positioning. Right, it's a political positioning to combat a new imperialism that's entered into the Latin American context, right? right? Continent, so which is already exclusive of indigenous communities, right? which is, in, yeah, already exclusive yeah. of indigenous yeah. communities. Yes. Yeah, um, Josie, is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation about your research or current projects, future projects? Well, I'm um, currently, I'm actually. Uh, working um, on questions of citizenship and the challenge that asylum seekers place on post to uh, liberal models of citizenship where, um, you know, citizenship is understood as a, as a, as a bounded to one's nation uh, and a closed space, right, mm-hmm. where some are let in and others are excluded. Uh, so I'm right now, because of the crisis with, uh, you know, uh, of asylum, the crisis in Central America. Mm-hmm. We don't have a crisis on our border. Mm-hmm. We have a crisis in Central America right. uh, with gang violence. Mm-hmm. And so I'm using the concept of citizenship and the way in which our, why does our security in the United States as citizens depend upon their insecurity? We are the ones consuming the drugs that are causing such havoc in Mexico and Latin and Central America, right? We're the, we're the buyers. Mm-hmm. We're the ultimate, you know, target. So uh, what is our role in creating an insecure form of citizenship for Central America. And that, to me, seems very important to underscore. Uh, We're the arms makers. We're the drug consumers. Mm -hmm. So uh, why is it that we require our security at the expense of theirs? And uh, this is what I'm hoping that asylum, you know, the cases of asylum will help me to pry that open. So um, it's not directly uh, engaged with race and ethnicity or indigeneity, although, of course, many of the uh, those seeking asylum Mm -hmm. are indigenous. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's a very important, uh, you know, you always have to remind the United States of its history, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, do you want to, uh, the, the irony of uh, 
Trump's call to deport all of the maras and all of the criminals, it's like, that's how we got into this problem in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Because we deported so many U.S., not born, but U.S. bred gang members mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And then we deported them all to Central America, a tiny piece of land, by mm-hmm. the way, you know, especially if you're just talking about the Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. And so you have a situation where this gang culture, U.S. gang culture was introduced mm-hmm. to Central America because of our deportation policies of, you know, uh, criminal aliens, mm-hmm. documented and undocumented. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is Amara? Amara Salvatrucha is, uh, you know, that's why they're called MS. This is how you know that it's a U.S. export because <laughs> they're MS-13 mm-hmm. or MS-18. And why are they MS-13? Because the Mara Salvatrucha mixed with the Mexican mafia in California prisons and adopted 13 because of that alliance because M is the 13th letter of the alphabet in English. It's not the 13th letter of the Spanish alphabet, mm-hmm. right? So that's how we know it's a U.S. product. And MS-18, it's because of the intersection of 18th Street and and P, it's the 18th Street Maras because it's the P, intersection of, I think it's 18th Location, and Pico or yeah. 18th and Union in L.A. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are U.S. exports. Mm-hmm. You know, this criminal culture is a U.S. export. And we're responsible for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every time you talk about, you know, extending DACA to dreamers, mm-hmm. you should also talk about extending DACA to criminal aliens. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, otherwise we're never going to get out of this cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Josie, uh, thank you for visiting Ohio and this wonderful conversation. I hope you have a good time. And I know that um, you have a panel coming up. So um, and I know you're fully prepared for it. <laughs> um, thank you for for this conversation. Of course. A todos, gracias por escucharnos. Y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. 